the name is Sean. You can call me a schnook. <laughs> Been called worse. Well, hiya, friends. It's Sean with Autobiography of a Schnook, Chapter 23. And uh, how are you? Well, as for me, I'm still okay so far, I guess. Uh, I'm healthy as far as I know. And uh, I really don't know what else to say in that regard. Uh, I diligently wear a mask over my face, over my nose and mouth, when I'm going to be in a situation when I can't stay six feet away from somebody I don't live with, or if I'm in public and inside a building, of course. Because if I'm sick, I don't want anybody else to get sick. I found that there is one huge advantage being a dog person. I don't always wear a mask when I take my dog out for a walk, unless it's, say, during a peak time of day when a lot of people are out, then I'll take a mask with me, and if I can't avoid people, I'll put it on my face. Well, do you have any idea how badly beagle poop stinks? It's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. Let me tell you, though. You have yourself a mask on your face, it makes things a lot less unbearable. So, if for no other reason to wear a mask, wear a mask if you're around beagle poop. And because of this disease that we still haven't managed to control in this country, well, I don't know, if, it's not so much because of the disease, I guess, but because of just how strict our mayor is, Lori Lightfoot. She's still not allowing anything east of Lakeshore Drive open in Chicago, except, uh, I think I mentioned before, but there's a big trail that goes along Lake Michigan. Uh, there's a pedestrian trail and an adjacent bike trail, and that was closed for a while, but that's been reopened. But everything else that is east of Lakeshore Drive, which is the big long road that abuts Lake Michigan, not allowed to open, so no beaches are open which means the lifeguards aren't really working. There are a few lifeguards out who are called social distancing ambassadors or something. They're supposed to make sure people are staying six feet apart. How well that's working, it depends on the person you ask, actually. But what really is bad is that there are actually restaurants and snack bars and at least two bike shops east of Lakeshore Drive that aren't allowed to open yet. So, I don't know. My wife, Lisa, she was practically born and raised on the beach. She lives, breathes, and thrives beach. So her solution for the beach by us being closed, yeah, she drives a few miles north and goes to the beaches in Evanston, which are open. Only the Chicago beaches are closed. So I, I don't know how that works, but she swears she's keeping her distance. She's wearing a mask, not going close to six feet. I mean, once you're in the water, it's, there's little chance of catching and spreading things from what the medical experts are telling us. Restaurants are now allowed to be open inside, again with limitations and strict social distancing requirements, and you got to keep your mask on until your food comes. We've only eaten in at the Weber Grill restaurant in downtown Chicago, and when we were there, we were one of maybe two parties, maybe three present, and they had everybody spaced out all across the place. And it's a big place, too, so we felt pretty safe. And I think part of the reason that there was so much space between everybody wasn't just restaurant limitations, but they were also basically gutting the place and rearranging the, uh, the furniture to be COVID-19 compliant. So we had no choice but to sit far apart from everybody. So we felt pretty safe about that, but we haven't been to any other 
indoor restaurants. If we get restaurant food, we either eat outside or we bring it home, usually bring it home. I did get to see my parents for the first time since February, actually, because here in Illinois, the numbers were starting to go down. It was looking pretty good. Still is, actually. There's a little tiny bit of a spike, probably because of people not celebrating the 4th of July carefully. But um, it seemed that it would be safe to get together, and so far it's proven true. It's been almost a month, and everybody in my family is fine, so I got to see them for the first time in a while. We kept our masks on, except while we were eating. So that was uh, nice to do. Uh, Now, there are a couple of things I need to uh, kind of correct, maybe addend. Uh, Something I realized, uh, chapter 21, when I was talking about working as a part-time jock at uh, the Cat 105.5, I told that story about how the guys hosting the racing show took the remote cell phone, that is the cell phone they use to do remote broadcasts from. It's called the Cellcaster, I think. And they got approval from Bruce, our general manager, to do a remote from the Great Lakes Dragaway. And it turned out that Bruce didn't know where Great Lakes Dragaway was. He didn't know that for a two-hour broadcast, the cell phone bill, mind you, this is before they had free minutes and all that, the cell phone bill would be reflecting a two-hour broadcast from Wisconsin. And it just now occurred to me why Bruce was caught by surprise. It's because he thought they were talking about the Route 60 or Route whatever, the Route 66 raceway, which was either about to open or already opened. And that was on the south side of Joliet and ergo not far from Wilmington where the station was. So that wouldn't have been a huge deal. But no, they were talking about the place in Wisconsin. So I just wanted to clarify that. Now, the previous episode, chapter 22, I feel ashamed. I might need to turn in my Chicagoan card. I talked about the street numbering system and the drives, how Chicago has, really like anywhere else, you have avenues, streets, places, drives, roads, plaza, court, whatever. And I said that it appears to me that if a street is designated as a drive, it means that it has not only east-west designations, but also north or south designations, like, for example, Lakeshore Drive. There's a North Lakeshore Drive, there's a South Lakeshore Drive, and I believe there's an East Lakeshore Drive. So being that it goes in both North-South and East-West, that makes it a drive, the same as LaSalle Drive. I somehow forgot about Wacker Drive, one of the more famous streets in the city. I mean, Wacker Drive, that's where the Sears Tower is. And remember the Blues Brothers? Of course you do. It's the greatest movie ever. During that uh, dramatic, climactic chase scene at the end, they drive on Lower Wacker Drive for a while. Well, Wacker Drive starts near the intersection of Harrison Street, which is 600 south on the city's street numbering grid, and Franklin Street, which is 300 west on the grid. So at that point, it's South Wacker Drive, because it's south of Madison, 600 south. So Wacker goes north for a while, and it follows the curve of the south branch of the Chicago River, and at that point, it's a little tiny bit north of Lake Street, and Lake Street is 200 north, so it's a little over two blocks north of Madison Street, hence the north designation. And at the curve, Wacker Drive is designated as West Wacker Drive, so there you go, you have a north and a south and a like westbound designation, so... Bing, there's the drive. 
And actually, as it follows the river east, it becomes East Wacker Drive once it crosses over State Street. So, yeah, Wacker Drive has the distinction of having parts that are on North Wacker Drive, South Wacker Drive, West Wacker Drive, and East Wacker Drive. And there's another drive that I totally forgot about, partly because it's brand new, and that's Ida B. Wells Drive. There was a campaign in Chicago not terribly long ago to name a street after Ida B. Wells, who was a co-founder of the NAACP and was a former slave who eventually lived in Chicago. Personally, I think the way they went about it was dumb, possibly insulting, because they only named a really small stretch of a street after her, Congress Parkway, which, by the way, is 500 South on the grid system in the city. And they only renamed the stretch of it that starts at Grant Park right by the lake, and then it continues through downtown until where Interstate 290 begins. So maybe a mile worth of Congress was renamed Ida B. Wells Drive. The rest is still Congress. And to add confusion to insult, well, Ida B. Wells Drive actually intersects with Wells Street. So you have Wells Street and Ida B. Wells Drive. If that isn't confusing, forget it. And they're not even named after the same person because Wells Street was named after William Wells, who was shot and killed by a group of Potawatomis in the Battle of Fort Dearborn. So, yeah, some more um, Chicago history for uh, those of you who don't know it, which might even be a lot of Chicagoans might not know that much, including myself, until I did some research. So, yeah. But I got a uh, pretty long show today. Pretty long show, so uh, I'm not going to preamble much more. So, uh, speaking of drives, let's talk about driving, because, you know, it's this time of year, it's vacation time, and a lot of people take road trips, especially this year. So I thought I'd talk about my life on the road, doing road trips, because I've done several in my life, and I hope to do several more, so... Without any further, uh, oh, what's another word for ado? Because I hate when people say without any further ado. Um, here you go. By my 21st birthday, I had been to several states in my life. My grandparents retired to Wisconsin, albeit southern Wisconsin, so naturally I'd been there many times. Because of various road trips, when I worked for the college's football team, I'd been to Michigan, Iowa, Ohio, Minnesota, and Kentucky. And on summer trips with my family, I went to Florida several times. But here's the thing. I had never been in an airplane until after my 21st birthday. You see, my mother would never get in an airplane thanks to her fear of heights. To this day, she refuses to fly. The rare times they do go on a trip these days, if they don't drive, they take Amtrak. And it's a shame because I really think my mother would just flip out over Las Vegas, which isn't a reasonable drive from the Chicago area, especially at my parents' age, and Amtrak doesn't have a stop in Vegas. Naturally, the Florida trips were all road trips. When I met Lisa and I moved to New Jersey, whenever we'd travel, we'd fly. Most of our trips for spring break and summer are thanks to Southwest Airlines. By the way, Southwest, uh, uh, take this as an invitation to sponsor this podcast. Uh, I will have my uh, attorneys from the law firm of Ka and Ching uh, reach out to you. <laughs> anyway, uh, we do enjoy a road trip now and then, and in fact, I love road trips now. 
I guess maybe the Florida trips with my parents broke me in. Don't get me wrong, I like flying, but sometimes you just want to see what's on the ground. Also, I get claustrophobic, so sometimes the thought of being stuck in a pressurized metal tube for several hours gets me uptight. That's one reason I haven't been to Hawaii yet. But when you drive somewhere, you can pull over wherever you want to take a stretch, or empty the bladder, or grab a meal. You get to see some cool sights that you just don't get to see from the air. And yeah, I know many lament of the good old days when road trips predated interstate highways. But the truth is, even on interstates, there are still interesting things to look at. One of the Florida trips is actually the first road trip that I have any memory of. Now, let me give you an idea of the road trip that my family would take. It's a two-day drive to Florida. While many people would rent a car for a road trip in case, God forbid, something happened to the car during the trip, my parents would just take their car. Oh, and uh, no AAA either. They never even visited AAA to get a trip tick that would not only map out the route, but also tell you where all the rest stops and their amenities are on the way. Then again, was there a AAA office anywhere in the Kankakee area? I don't know. Also, they didn't book their overnight road stays in advance. When it was time to call it a day for driving, they'd just exit the highway and pull over at a Holiday Inn or a Hampton Inn or something like that. And of course, there was the bickering. Oh, my parents would yak at each other. <laughs> I just wanted to open the door and tuck and roll. But going back to that first road trip, I don't remember when it was. It was either 1977, when I was two years old, almost three, or the following year, 78. And it was very likely around the time of 4th of July. And actually, now that I think about it, it must have been 1978, because I would have been almost four years old. And I could definitely speak in at least somewhat coherent sentences. But anyway, the four of us, my parents, my brother, and me, probably in my mom's old red Pontiac. Being so young at the time, my recollections are vague. I remember my family talking about driving through Kentucky at the time. I also remember swimming in the ocean and finding it odd that the water tasted so salty. This might have been Daytona Beach, but I don't 100% remember for sure. I definitely remember Disney World from that trip, though. I mean, who wouldn't remember It's a Small World? I think it was on Main Street, USA, where I was hearing this Happy Birthday Mickey Mouse song. Uh, which birthday was it? I, I don't know. The whole world wants to wish you happy birthday, Mickey Mouse. But one clear memory I had was on either the Jungle Cruise ride or the boat ride back to the parking lot when one of my parents stuck a white hat on my head, and I hated that hat. I was literally just thinking about taking off the hat and chucking it in the water, frisbee style, but my mom apparently could hear my thoughts. She said, don't you dare throw that hat in the water. Now, being as young as I was, as with any other kid my age at the time, I loved Mickey Mouse. I had a marching Mickey Mouse doll. If you squeezed one of the hands, one of the legs moved forward a bit so you could make Mickey march by squeezing the hands repeatedly in alternating patterns. I carried that thing with me everywhere. If we went on a car trip somewhere to visit family, that marching Mickey Mouse would go with me. Well, that marching Mickey Mouse was in the car while we were at the Magic Kingdom, but when we got back to the car, the heat in the car melted the plastic on Mickey's head, causing the back of his head to cave in. I remember very well how that was about the worst thing in the world to ever happen to me. 
I carried on crying loudly, just nonstop, inconsolable. On the way back to the motel, we pulled over at a ton of different places looking for a new one. The whole time, my parents having to hear me say, <laughs> The whole time. I think it was at a Kmart where they actually found a new marching Mickey Mouse, and miraculously, that shut me up for good. My mom, to this day, claims she still has the one that melted, but I have not seen it since that tragic day. Back in February, my mom gave me a bunch of my old stuff, including the newer, unmelted marching Mickey Mouse, so uh, I actually have that next to me in the schnook-nook now, even though I don't like Disney anymore. We also went to SeaWorld during that trip, probably the next day. I remember very little about SeaWorld, except that my parents bought me a little stuffed dolphin or whale or something. And while we were in the car, I would toss that little dolphin or whale or whatever up in the air and make it spin around, kind of like what I saw in the shows at SeaWorld. Uh, you know what? Actually, now that I think about it, it might not have been Daytona Beach where I swam in the ocean, but Sarasota, because I definitely remember that we went there to visit some of my dad's cousins and the aunt and uncle who raised him. Again, I don't remember much from that visit other than that I had a deck of Mickey Mouse playing cards from Disney World. And when my distant cousin Terry, probably about five-ish years my senior, he was just kind of futzing with them, and I said to him, put them away. And I remember mom giving me a hard time over being so selfish. And to this day, honestly, I still feel guilty over it. Uh, Terry, if you're listening, I'm sorry. We did another drive to Florida in, I'm pretty sure, 1985, the summer before sixth grade. I was 10 years old. It would be the first major trip I'd be old enough to remember more than just a few details. We left, I believe, on the 4th of July. The plan was we would stay in Daytona Beach, but we'd spend a day doing touristy stuff in St. Augustine, and then go to Disney World for a day, and Sea World for a day, and I don't remember if there was anything else specifically planned. So my parents booked a room at the Whitehall Inn, and I think it came from one of those newspaper ads, you know, they see at the bottom of the paper, uh, there was some kind of deal going on. And let me tell you, my mother took great delight in trying to keep me in line in the days leading up to the trip, because I was really excited about it. On the way home from my last day of school, she wanted to stop at a greenhouse to pick up a couple of plants, and it was flipping hot in that greenhouse. If I had the slightest complaint about it, Mom would loudly tell me how it's hot in Florida, so if I couldn't stand a short time inside a greenhouse, there's no way I'd be able to stand Florida. And of course, if at any point I wasn't on my best behavior, the old, we'll turn the car around and go home cliche would apply. But man, I do remember the ridiculous amount of stuff that I packed for the trip to keep with me in the back seat. I didn't have a working Walkman at the time. I had two or three that either died or I dropped on the tile floor and it broke or something. So I had my boombox, a cheap pair of headphones, and a bunch of cassettes of things I recorded through the air from records and TV. I had a notebook in which I taped some of the comic strips from recent newspapers so I'd have something to read, because God forbid should I read a regular book. And because I was a stupid 10-year-old who liked to watch a lot of TV, I actually wrote down the TV schedule, not realizing that outside of the Chicago viewing area, you get totally different channels with different programming. If I recall correctly, when we left really super early in the morning, I'm talking 7am, we pulled over at a McDonald's in Kankakee. My order, hotcakes. And uh, yeah, despite my boycott that's been going on since 1994, I, uh, I do have to admit that McDonald's had really good hotcakes. 
I remember going through Indianapolis and seeing a dome and other things from the big city off in the distance. I also remember admiring the mountains in Kentucky and enjoying the tourist information machines at the rest stops. On the way down, there were ubiquitous roadside signs encouraging you to see Ruby Falls and see Rock City. Ruby Falls and Rock City, those of you who don't know, they are tourist attractions on Lookout Mountain, which is a huge mountain that borders Tennessee and Georgia. One thing I learned really fast, there's a stretch of Interstate 24 that my mother dreaded, and it goes through Monteagle, Tennessee. Monteagle was both a mountain and a town, and Interstate 24 contoured around that mountain. The inner lanes were southbound, the outer lanes were northbound. And remember, my mom is scared of heights. Personally, I loved the view, but mom obviously didn't. I'm pretty sure she spent the whole time going up and down Mount Eagle with one foot planted against that glove compartment. And when you get back down to the bottom, you're in Chattanooga almost immediately. And that's where we spent the night at a Holiday Inn. We had dinner at the Chattanooga Choo Choo, which was very cheesy, very touristy, but Damn it, it was so much fun. We checked into the Holiday Inn pretty late, though, but at the desk they said they'd keep the pool open for us if we wanted to use it, so my dad and I spent some quality time in that pool, which was really, really cool. In fact, to this day, whenever I have to spend the night somewhere outside of my home, the first thing I check for in a hotel is if there's a pool or a hot tub. But anyway, the next day I learned a pretty hard lesson. Florida is a long state. You look at a map of the U.S., you just don't appreciate how far down you have to drive. It's like eight hours once you get into the the state of Florida, even if you're not even going all the way down. It's just down to the middle of the state. But before Florida, we went through Georgia. Back then, I was obsessed with the Guinness Book of World Records, and I knew that the world's tallest hotel was in Atlanta, so I kept an eye out for it as we drove through downtown Atlanta. When we crossed into Florida, we pulled into a welcome center. It was a pretty huge one, two stories, and they were giving out free orange juice and grapefruit juice. I don't remember what time we got to Daytona Beach, but it was pretty late. The sun was already starting to set. We checked into the room at the Whitehall Inn, and, eh, well, it was kind of a greasy dump that was practically caked in beer. My parents said, no way in hell were we going to be staying there, so we booked it out of there and looked for somewhere else to stay. Nearby, there was another hotel, and it was called the Beachcomber Inn. So we walked in, and, well, the one person working at the lobby behind the desk was some hairy, unwashed guy in a white sleeveless undershirt. So my parents noped out of there, too. So we found a Holiday Inn, and in my eyes, at least, there was nothing wrong with it. It was clean, it was safe, and you could literally drive right to your room in the parking deck. You entered the room through the parking deck, and there was your car right there, so you'd have easy access. I don't know why, but my mother refused to stay there to the point that she was in tears. I mean, really, the room was perfectly fine, the front desk was good, so I I don't know what the deal was, and I'm not going to ask. But my dad put his foot down. The next place we went, that was where we were staying, period, or else we'd be driving forever, and it was already 10 o'clock at night. My dad's decision landed us at a Days Inn motel on Ormond Beach for 60 bucks a night, which was pretty expensive for a no-frills motel room in 1985. The carpet was greasy, the drain in the bathroom sink was loaded with sand, and there was a cockroach on the floor. Man, this place was a flea bag. 
But we spent the night there and swore that the next day after we visit St. Augustine, we'd find somewhere else. But we were so happy to leave that day's inn behind. We visited a very touristy fort in St. Augustine. Uh, you know, one of those places where there's the obligatory stockade photograph place. Uh, I think I have that picture. I'll link it in the uh, online bibliography if uh, I remember. And uh, we also went to the Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum because I was kind of into that stuff. Well, when we took a lunch break, my dad happened to look down at his hand and realized he didn't have his wedding band. He um, left it at that flea trap Days Inn. He panicked, went to the nearest payphone, and frantically called the Days Inn. The front desk put him on hold for a few minutes and got back to him to say their cleaning staff found it. Of course, my parents didn't buy that for a moment. I mean, cleaning staff? What cleaning staff? They have cleaning staff? Regardless, though, he drove back down to Ormond Beach, and my dad retrieved his wedding band. That experience kind of spooked him. It's since been 35 years, and I think he literally has not taken that ring off his finger since, come hell or high water. We took off and headed into Orlando and looked for a place to stay. The first place we checked out was a Holiday Inn, and um, it actually met my parents' strict standards. Actually, now that I think about it, it might have been in Kissimmee. Uh, well, whatever. But uh, we spent some quality time at the pool after we checked in. And the next day, we went to the Magic Kingdom. And my mother dictated the going there and coming back plan. We'd park and take the monorail into the Magic Kingdom, and then we'd take the ferry boat to get back from the park into the parking lot. And of course, while we were at the Magic Kingdom, we checked out the stuff you're supposed to check out. It's a Small World, Pirates of the Caribbean, Country Bear Jamboree, and a new ride called Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. It caught my mother's eye because uh, it was basically an old-timey kind of train that goes around a mountain. And she wanted to ride it. She thought it was just going to be a neat ride on an old-style train. She had no idea it was a roller coaster. Until we were already strapped in... And we learned that it was a roller coaster. And that was the first time I ever rode a roller coaster. And I got to tell you, I loved it. Well, until I started feeling queasy later on in the day and uh, puked my guts out in front of a couple of dozen people. Where did I do that? I really don't remember. But man, I felt terrible. I felt so sick. So we went to the Country Bear Jamboree afterwards. And I remember the announcer saying the tired old sit back, relax and enjoy the show spiel. Well, I found that if I sat back, my stomach would really start to act up, so I spent the whole show just leaning forward so I wouldn't barf. Well, until after the show, where I threw up again outside. I remember at the time there was some kid posing for a picture with one of the Country Bear characters, so my mom shoved me over next to him so she could take a picture of me next to him. And uh, let me tell you, it was not a pretty picture, because first of all, here I am next to this character who's looking another way, because he's posing for a picture with somebody else, and I'm pale as a freaking ghost because I just puked, and uh, I did not look well. I'm debating whether or not I should share that picture. Maybe I will. I don't know. But as we were leaving the Magic Kingdom, they offered to stamp our hands for later re-entry, and my folks asked me if I wanted to come back after dinner. But because I was still feeling so damn sick, I was like, no, no, no. For whatever reason, on the way back to the Holiday Inn, we stopped at a Kmart. I guess my mom wanted to look at the women's clothing or something, so my dad and I went off to look at some other stuff. But I started to feel sick again. Uh, dad, dad, I think I'm gonna go throw up. Uh, I, I need to get to a bathroom. 
Well, the thing is, my mom was always overprotective. It still is, actually, and I'm 45 years old. But my mom has always been overprotective of her baby, and she had a very strict don't leave the kid alone in strange places rule. So I couldn't just go by myself to go to the bathroom. But my father insisted that we first had to find my mom and let her know that we were going to go to the bathroom. Dad, Dad, forget it. I think I'm going to puke. Let's just go. No, your mother will kill us if she can't find us. So he went out. We had to go find her. So on the way to find mom, my stomach just refused to wait. So right in front of the jewelry counter, I yacked the Sprite I drank earlier to try to settle my stomach. Thankfully, though, I felt much better the next day when we were going to SeaWorld. I know SeaWorld doesn't exactly have a great reputation these days, but hey, we had a fun time. We really liked it. We highly enjoyed the Shamu show, and they had this corny water ski show called Beach Blanket Ski Party that had kind of a jocks versus nerds storyline that used a lot of beach-themed oldies. I remember that we went up in the Sky Tower, which is one of those things where you rotate around slowly and you're gradually lifted up to about 250 feet so you can see everything around you. And I don't understand how we did that because my mother, again, is scared of heights, but she had no problem going in that thing, but whatever. And you could actually see the Epcot Center's spaceship Earth from there, so that was cool. When we got back to the Holiday Inn, though, my parents told me I needed to be packed up so we could be ready to leave nice and early the next morning. And that devastated me. I, I didn't know we were heading back so soon. My parents said, well, what the hell else do you think we could do? I thought for sure we would go to the Epcot Center, but nope. <sighs> well, the rest of the day wasn't a total disappointment, though, because we went to Red Lobster for dinner, and I had my first taste of lobster. And after dinner, my dad took me to the arcade that was attached to the Holiday Inn, and he gave me a dollar or two to play games. So we hit the road back the next day, and we had a stop in Cleveland, Georgia, in the middle of nowhere among the Appalachians. Why did we stop in Cleveland, Georgia? Well, my dad had been laid off from Roper Appliances in Kankakee a couple of years earlier when they shut down the plant. They told the employees, well, you either got to move to Georgia or file for unemployment. Well, there was no way in hell my mother would want to move to Georgia, so my dad took the unemployment and spent the next couple of years looking for work. So he wanted to visit some of his ex-co-workers that went on to Georgia. And while he was at it, across the street from the Roper plant in Cleveland was the Georgia plant of appliance wiring components. And my dad's current job at the time in Joliet was at the Joliet plant, of appliance wiring components. And that's how, by the grace of God, we got the hell out of Bourbon A and moved to Joliet. But did we stop in Cleveland just to see my dad's co-workers? Well, no. I'm thinking in retrospect that it was a compromise, because my mom also wanted to stop in Cleveland to visit Babyland General Hospital, the home of Cabbage Patch Kids. Mom was a major doll collector for several years, and she loved Cabbage Patch Kids. And here's a reminder for you. This was my mom's idea, and her traveling companions were her husband and their 10-year-old son. Was it torture for me? Well, let me put it to you this way. Driving a Honda Accord is less torture. Listening to Nickelback is less torture. A C-SPAN marathon is less torture. Politics is less to... Okay, it wasn't that bad, but it was torture! I remember there would be periodic announcements that a baby was about to be born, prompting prepubescent girls and their moms to stampede over to the Cabbage Patch to watch a Cabbage Patch kid being born in the Cabbage Patch. 
My mom ended up adopting two Cabbage Patch kids. By the way, uh, you have no idea how painful it was to just type that in my notes 35 years later. As part of that adoption, my mom had to take an oath. An oath! Mom later said that she couldn't make out half of what the lady was saying because of her southern accent, so she just repeated what it sounded like she was saying. Strangely enough, people we talked to in Georgia would actually say to us, It's hard to understand y'all with your funny accents. But anyway, these dolls, because they came straight from Babyland General, they were not Coleco branded, and they had the signature of Xavier Roberts himself. And he was essentially the Steve Jobs of the Cabbage Patch Kids world. And by the way, I actually looked this up. The Steve Wozniak of Cabbage Patch Kids was Martha Nelson Thomas, just for your own information. I could ask my mom to fill in some more details, but for the love of God, I did not want to relive that part of the trip. I just like to forget it. The only other memory I have of that trip is because of the stop in Cleveland, Georgia, we took three days to get home instead of the usual two. A few years later, we went back to Florida, right around the time I was about to enter high school. My parents had been chummy with our new across-the-street neighbors when we moved to Joliet. These neighbors were very well-off, to say the least, and they'd go to Clearwater Beach every year. A few in their family would fly down, a few would drive. That year, the matriarch of the family went down to one of those weight-loss camps a few days ahead of everybody else, and then headed over to their motel in Clearwater Beach to rejoin the family. Well, her husband was talking to us and said, hey, you guys should go down to Clearwater and surprise her when she's finished with the camp. So they offered one of their cars for us to drive down there. And my folks jumped at the opportunity, so we borrowed the neighbor's Cadillac and drove down. In Clarksville, Tennessee, though, uh, we had a blowout on the highway and we were stranded for three hours before a passerby helped us out. And those three hours significantly cut into our travel time, to the point that my mom even asked my dad if he just wanted to call it quits and go back home. But he said, no, let's just shove on. The plan, as with the previous trip, was to stop in Chattanooga for the night, but that was still a ways away. My mom made my dad agree that if we didn't get past Mont Eagle before dark, that we'd just pull over and find a motel room a little bit sooner, rather than try to drive up and down Mont Eagle at night. Well, <laughs> guess what happened? Yep, Mont Eagle at night. The problem was that the sign telling you how many miles it was to Mont Eagle was specifically referring to the town Mont Eagle and not the actual mountain, so it kind of snuck up on us by surprise. My mom was a friggin' basket case. She was tearfully pleading with my father to slow down on the way up the mountain, while meanwhile, cars were constantly leaving us in the dust. This is despite the huge concrete barrier between the northbound and southbound lanes. So even if we were doing, say, 100 miles an hour and had an accident, that concrete barrier would have stopped us from going over the cliff. But nope, that didn't matter. The signs for runaway truck zone and falling rock sure didn't make my mom feel any better either. But needless to say, we managed to survive. The entire trip was two weeks, and my parents loved both Clearwater Beach and the motel, the since-defunct Dunes Motel. The room was one of those efficiencies, so it had a kitchen in it, so that way they didn't have to go out to eat every freaking night, they could just get food from the grocery store. But we just spent the days at the motel on the dock, sometimes in the swimming pool, and a couple of times we went across the street to the beach and swam in the gulf. One night, we joined our neighbors to have dinner at a Spanish restaurant in Tarpon Springs called Tio Pepe's. It was had some really good chicken there. Mm. I 
don't really remember much else from uh, that trip, except there was a big hotel on the other side of the bay from where we were staying. And they had a guy playing a Casio keyboard outside, very loudly amplified. And I got to hear him play a huge variety of songs from Kokomo to All Night Long. But on the way back home, we had engine trouble near the top of Mon Eagle Mountain. And remember what I said earlier, heading north, you're on the outer contour, so you're by the cliff. The car started buzzing, and my mother, again being a basket case, said to my dad, I'll never forgive you for this. So we pulled over, and my parents got out of the car to check under the hood. I wanted to step outside of the car and get some fresh air and stretch my legs, but my mom loudly demanded that I stay put. <laughs> Apparently she thought that at age 13 I was too dumb to know to not wander over to the cliff. They argued over what was wrong with the car, got back in, and the car started up. Near the top of the mountain, there was a mechanic who confirmed that uh, my mother was right as to what the problem was, which meant for several more hours once the car was fixed, I had to hear my mother give my father an I told you so lecture. Now, here's the thing about Mont Eagle. I only just learned this, by the way. Even though people call it Mont Eagle Mountain, it's technically not a mountain. It's not tall enough to be a mountain. It's actually considered a grade but apparently that stretch of Interstate 24 that runs through it is pretty treacherous, and it's notorious for some tragic accidents. Having said that, that Clearwater trip happened several more times because my parents loved it so much. But they never went through Mont Eagle again. They mapped out a route that would avoid driving through the mountains. The old route was to go through Indiana, then down to Kentucky, and then Tennessee, and then Georgia before reaching Florida. But the new route went all the way down the southern end of Illinois and crossing into Kentucky and then Tennessee and then Alabama. Depending on how the stars were aligned, the first day would end in either Mobile or Montgomery, Alabama. The new route was longer in terms of mileage, but it had less stop and go and faster speed limits, so there was actually less time on the road. Going down Monte Mountain on I-24 it's hell for a trucker when the devil's at your door. He'll tempt you and tell you, come on, let her roll. Cause the mountain wants your rig, and trucker, I want your soul. Oh, speaking of speed limits, it was on one of these trips when I got to see my mom get a speeding ticket. <laughs> An Alabama state trooper pulled her over. The usual thing, driver's license, registration. Uh, I don't remember if they were asking for proof of insurance yet. And uh, the trooper didn't ask the cliche question, you know why I pulled you over? In fact, I've been pulled over twice, and neither time was for speeding, by the way. And neither time was I asked that question. Is that something they only do on TV? <laughs> but anyway, the trooper just cut to the chase. He said, Miss Courtney, I'm giving you a ticket because I clocked you at 77 miles an hour. The speed limit here is 55, not 65. So I guess speeding is okay, just not do it too fast. Anyway, later on, she was reading the details on the ticket, and she learned that if she had been going just one mile an hour faster, she would have been forced to appear in court. On another one of those trips, my dad got pulled over in Clearwater for some unknown reason. Again, the cop didn't ask my dad, do you know why I pulled you over? The officer just flat out told him, I pulled you over because you drove on a median to pull into this parking lot. My dad said, what? What median? I was in a turn lane. 
Now, I admit, I didn't have a driver's license yet, but it sure looked like a turn lane. After all, it had arrows on it telling you what direction to go, and it was flat. The cop said, oh yeah? Step outside of the car and show me where there's a turn lane. And he did just that. My dad and the cop walked over, and my dad pointed it out to the officer, who then insisted, that's not a turn lane, that's a median. Look, you're from Illinois, right? Well, I've been to Illinois many times myself, and they don't drive over medians there. So he walked my dad back to the car, and suddenly there was a car nearby that took off, literally burning rubber. So the cop said, look, I have more pressing business to take care of, so consider this a warning. And he ran back to his squad car and sped off. My dad, though, he just sat there staring. My mom said, um, Gary, can we just get out of here? He said, don't talk to me right now. I just need to sit here for a minute and just cool off. And by the way, from what I understand, in case anybody listening ever wonders why it seems that the police tend to target out-of-state vehicles for traffic enforcement, from what I hear, it's because people from out-of-state, they're less likely to contest the ticket in court. It would be a major inconvenience. So it's an easy way to just have people just say, yeah, whatever, whatever, I'll just pay the fine and be done with it. So it's a quick way to make money, apparently. I have a story about that in Asbury Park that I'll tell at a later time. But I stopped joining my parents for these Florida trips probably when I was 17 years old. But I remember my dad telling me another story of a police encounter on one of the trips I didn't go on. When he was behind the wheel on the interstate, a trooper came up behind him, got on the loudspeaker and said, Slow down or you're getting a ticket. So he slowed down and the trooper said, Keep going, keep going, there you go. But why did I no longer go on these trips? Well, several reasons. I couldn't go off on my own. My parents, well, my mom really, was so overprotective and controlling. And quite honestly, I was about to lose my mind being stuck in a car for two days with the two of them bickering and with their cheesy music blaring out of the speakers. Usually it was a Patsy Cline tape over and over and over, or sometimes it was a tape of Willie Nelson singing a bunch of old standards. I didn't have a good pair of headphones, so even with headphones on, their music drowned out the Beatles. And really, I just wanted to be by myself. I mean, yeah, my brother, who was 10 years older, still lived with us, but at least he had a job. And a lot of times after work, he'd go out with his girlfriend or to his side job as a DJ at a local bar and grill, so I'd have plenty of time to myself while they were away. The last time I was on one of the Florida trips, I told my parents, look, unless we start flying to Florida, count me out from now on. Well, my wish was granted because, of course, my mom refuses to fly. So that's what I can remember about the road trips with my parents. We did go to Bush Gardens once during one of those road trips, and it was pretty cool. My dad and I especially liked it a lot. We went on a tour of the... uh, Anheuser. How did, okay, why do they call it Anheuser? From what I know about German pronunciation, it should be called Anheuser. But whatever that brewery is supposed to be called, we took a tour there of that brewery that was on the Bush Gardens property. That was really cool. Highly recommend going on a brewery tour. <laughs> but that was it for road trips for me until I was in college and I worked for the football team. And of course, there were several road trips for obvious reasons. But as you know, if you heard uh, chapter 12 of this podcast, My experiences in this regard didn't exactly look at road tripping as a glamorous thing. My first road trip after college was when I moved to New Jersey, with my wife Lisa riding shotgun. And we did take turns driving, of course. We did that drive in one day, 14 hours total driving time, with a few breaks for meals and physiology. 
By the time we crossed over the New Jersey border out of Pennsylvania, I was barely able to stay awake, but we pressed on and made it all the way to the shore. One memory I have of that trip, though, is um, my wife wanted to listen to basically the entire Beach Boys catalog the whole trip there. We made it as far as their 1969 album, 2020. In fact, when we were going over the Driscoll Bridge, uh, those of you who don't know the Driscoll Bridge, it's on the Garden State Parkway, one of the three tollways in New Jersey. And it's basically what takes you out of North Jersey and into Central Jersey. And when you're driving north on the Driscoll Bridge and you get into North Jersey, things don't look very attractive. But that night when we were driving south to head home... What was so cool was we hit the peak of the Driscoll Bridge, and then we saw all these beautiful lights in the hills all over the place. It looked so cool. And right at that moment, we heard the opening vocal chord of I Can Hear Music. And the combination was just perfect. But anyway, in retrospect, 14 hours and I was barely staying awake. We really should have just stopped and spent the night somewhere. But hey... It's over, it's done, we made it in one piece. But after that, really, the last thing I wanted to think about was doing a road trip. So after I moved to New Jersey in 1998, I, I didn't really do road trips. Usually the farthest we drove was maybe three hours to visit Lisa's relatives in uh, Maryland. But there was an exception. One Thanksgiving, we visited her aunt on her father's side in Lawrence, Massachusetts. Now, one thing I just want to say right now, Lawrence is a fine place. There's nothing wrong with it, but the trip there was just torture. It was a six-hour drive, and it was, it was like water torture, really. Once you think you're going to be on a road for any length of time, right when you're about to get comfortable, suddenly you have to turn off onto another one, and it was just, oh, it was just torture. And going through Connecticut through that route, I mean, Connecticut's a nice state, but man, the route there to from Jersey to Lawrence is just brutally boring. Lisa quite often tells me how her father would get in a bad mood ahead of time just to prepare for the drive. And it kind of explains why her aunt was usually in a crabby mood after she'd drive to New Jersey to visit us. Outside of our two annual trips to the Chicago area to visit my family and friends, we didn't really do a heck of a lot of traveling when we lived in Jersey, despite living just under an hour away from Newark International Airport. And we certainly did not want to take any road trips. Well, there was one time we had no choice but to take a road trip, and that was uh, when we moved to Chicago in 2006. But unlike when I moved to New Jersey, this time we were bright enough to split the trip up over two days. So we spent the night in Cleveland, Ohio, and we visited the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame the next morning before we finished the trip. And uh, it wasn't so bad. Now, thing is, Lisa had to go back to New Jersey, though, because she still had a year left to finish up her master's degree. So we had to essentially repeat that same trip when she was finished a year later, except this time we didn't visit the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Interestingly, though, uh, I didn't hate the trip. I, I didn't hate it this time at all. I was actually kind of looking forward to it. Maybe it was because Lisa was coming home with me for good now that she was finished with school. Or perhaps it was because I'd get a chance to drive under Fangboner Road and giggle like a 10-year-old boy. Or maybe it was simply because I had done the trip already and knew what to expect. But whatever the case was, I was now much more open to the idea of a road trip. And we actually did take summer road trips to New Jersey and back for several years, again splitting the driving over two days each way. I actually enjoyed the drive. It was fun to see off in the distance the RV Hall of Fame in Elkhart, Indiana. 
Ohio, though, Ohio is never exciting to drive through, though. But uh, I do have to admit, their rest stops on the Ohio Turnpike are pretty nice. What I did love, though, is near the Indiana-Ohio border, there's a billboard advertising the South Bend Chocolate Company, encouraging you to stop in and get some chocolate to get you through the pain of entering Ohio. And it actually said that, by the way. I'm not making that up. I remember one time during one of these trips, we were listening to the radio and just changing the dial, checking out the local color, and we landed on a comedy game show. Turned out to be Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me on NPR. We had never heard of it, but it turns out it's recorded in downtown Chicago of all places. How did we not know about it? And that became a tradition. Every time we'd make that New Jersey trip, we would listen to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, either live or in podcast form. And later on when we were doing that, uh, well, whatever the radio equivalent of channel surfing is, uh, this was when we were driving through Ohio. We stumbled on a talk station and they were, uh, they were doing a weather report. The temperature was 28 degrees. Wait, wait, wait a minute. This was July. How could the temperature be 28 degrees? There's no freaking way. It's pretty warm out. It turned out to be a station in Windsor, Ontario, where they measure things using the metric system along with the rest of the world except for the United States. We listened to that station just so we could hear somebody pronounce the word about as a boot. And I guess that's what kept us sane and alert while driving through Ohio, really. The mountainous regions of Pennsylvania along the Pennsylvania Turnpike are just gorgeous, and I loved stopping at the Sidling Hill rest stop. The scenery is nothing short of breathtaking there. Oh, by the way, speaking of the Pennsylvania Turnpike, I got some fun information for you here. On the Pennsylvania Turnpike, the janitor's closets in the men's rooms at all the stops we stopped at were locked with simplex locks. Those are those uh, locks with the five buttons you push in a certain sequence if you want to unlock the door. Well, I don't know if this is still the case because we haven't done the trip since 2014, but in the five annual trips we made, those locks were set to the factory default combination. Uh, just to save you some time from Googling, uh, the default combination on a simplex lock is uh, you press two and four at the same time, and then you press three by itself. One time when I opened one of those closets, there was a guy in there, and he just kind of looked at me puzzled. Well, oh, anyway, uh, back to our story. Now, the reason that we haven't done the New Jersey road trip in six years? Well, actually, there are several reasons. Those trips weren't so much a vacation as they were, well, just going to my mother-in-law's house and hanging out there for a few days. Neither Lisa nor I liked the idea of taking that much time off just to hang out at uh, someone's house as a family obligation, more or less. And by the way, I should disclaim, my mother-in-law and I do get along pretty well. It's just that if you're using vacation time, you actually want to travel somewhere. The solution to that, by the way, is that now my mother-in-law usually visits us in the summer. Also, we'd take our beagle Ruthie with us. Ruthie was a really good traveler, and she loved riding in the car. And while on the road, we would spend the night at the La Quinta in uh, Macedonia, Ohio, where they uh, allow pets for no extra fee. But even though Ruthie was a really good traveler, she would always be out of sorts because she was in unfamiliar places. And in those five trips we took with Ruthie, we realized how lucky we were that nothing happened to her on the way. She didn't get sick, and thank God we never lost control of her leash or anything. We were also lucky in that we never had any car trouble, and we didn't get into any accidents or anything bad. But just the thought that that was possible, and so many other factors, went into our decision to discontinue the annual New Jersey road trips. One of our most memorable road trips, though, was in late summer of 2010. In addition to the New Jersey trip that year, Lisa and I drove to South Dakota. 
I had recently been laid off and I was fortunate enough that my severance funded my entire summer. And uh, going off on a tangent a little bit here, I was lucky enough also that the timing of my next job was that my first paycheck for my next job actually coincided with my last severance paycheck. So I got like a double paycheck that time. That was really cool. But anyway, because we had enough funds to get me through the summer and that I had the promise of a new job after the summer and we had plenty of time, we figured we had enough time for another trip. And let me tell you, that was such a fun trip. We went up through Wisconsin on Interstate 90, and we had lunch at a place called the Pinecone Restaurant, which apparently is a chain, and it's basically a diner, almost a truck stop kind of diner. The food was delicious and dirt cheap. And the pie, ho ho. Now, I'm not a pie person at all. I much prefer cake, but their chocolate cream pie, oh my god, it was amazing. And the slices are huge. We spent the night at the Americ Inn in Jackson, Minnesota, which was an excellent place to stay. A very clean, really nice pool, friendly staff. Eh, but the bed wasn't comfortable. But other than that, I would highly recommend it. And what was really cool is that across the parking lot, there was another hotel or motel that was literally built into a hill. So that we walked around and just explored just to see what we could see. The one thing that I really remember most about this trip was that throughout most of Minnesota, we were driving through wind farm after wind farm after wind farm, and it was kind of freaking me out. I mean, I, I got nothing. I, I'm, I'm not one of those people who thinks that wind farms are a bad thing. I mean, I honestly don't really know enough to know one way or the other, but it's just kind of creepy. You see these giant, huge windmills, and uh, you'll see like a whole field of them where the blades are rotating, except for on one windmill where they're not. And it's like, what is making that thing not rotate? This is creepy. I, I don't know why, but that just freaks me out. <laughs> but anyway, uh, going back to the South Dakota road trip, I know you're all asking this. Did you stop at the Mitchell Corn Palace? Oh, heck yes, we did. If you remember from previous episodes, Lisa and I love tacky things, and we knew about the glorious tackiness of the Mitchell Corn Palace, so we pulled over and checked it out. Those of you who've never been there, well, let me spoil it for you. It's basically just a large gym with a basketball court and bleachers. That's it. It's, just, it's like a high school gym. And yeah, it's used for a concert arena quite frequently, but... Really, it's just a place to play basketball games. The only real attraction is the decorations on the outside of the building, and they change it up every year. It's a new design. We also felt that it was highly necessary to stop at Wall Drugstore. One of the reasons we did that was because when Lisa's mother's family would take their road trips every summer, one of the places they stopped was at Wall Drugstore. So my wife wanted to honor her family's legacy by doing that, and she even... Uh, Tried to call her aunt and uncle from there. They weren't home there just to say, hey, I'm at Wall Drugstore. Let me tell you that if you've never been there, it is one of the largest tourist traps in the world. It is so tacky and so cheesy, but it is fun as all hell. They have these huge dinosaur statues that you see from the interstate. And when you're probably still in Minnesota, you start to see literally several hundred billboards advertising Wall Drugstore. The signs advertise free ice water. And the story about that was when Wall Drugstore first opened just as regular drugstore, they weren't getting a lot of business. And just for the heck of it, they advertised free ice water and suddenly they got a lot of business, even though it was pretty standard for drugstores to offer free ice water. But apparently they were the first to actually advertise it. And yeah, they did have a pharmacy too, but there was also a, 
a lot of gift shops, and a primitive animatronic display as well. And really, you cannot drive through South Dakota without stopping there. Our destination was Rapid City to check out Mount Rushmore. Now, for those of you who've never been to Mount Rushmore, the thing about it is, well, most of the pictures you see of it make it look huge and majestic. Well, honestly, it's not. It's surprisingly small. What you see in those pictures is just the very top of a rather small mountain. The surrounding Black Hills are quite lovely, though. We actually preferred the Badlands, though, which is where we stopped off when we left South Dakota to head home. It's amazingly scenic there, but I, I don't know how else to describe it, but we loved it. We took a different route going home. We went through Nebraska, spending the night in Omaha, and then we drove through Iowa the second day of the trip. We have done a couple of road trips in more recent years that did not start from home, though. Every summer we take a trip somewhere, because my wife, being a teacher, has summers off, and she loves traveling. Oh, so do I, actually. So we try to fit in a trip if our finances allow it. In 2015, we flew out to Portland, Oregon. And yeah, I have to specify Oregon because there's also a Portland in Maine. And in fact, Portland, Oregon is named after Portland, Maine. After we spent a few days in Portland, we took a road trip down to San Francisco, and I call that the Port O'San trip. We split the drive up in two days, spending one night at the Best Western in Crescent City, California. We took Route 101 pretty much the whole way down, stopping off to admire a scenic view that a roadside sign promised, and holy cow, that was not an empty promise at all. We saw an amazing view of the Pacific right there in Port Orford, Oregon. It was just, wow, just mind-blowing. Also, Lisa's stepmother lives right off 101 in Oregon with her boyfriend, so we stopped off and visited with them for a while. But the scenery heading down the coast, oh my god, hard to beat. Tons of redwoods, although we didn't go through any of those uh, drive through redwoods for whatever reason. We didn't pull over for one of those. On the road, we went through several small towns with charming downtown districts. Uh, Eureka comes to mind. So we're really hoping that we'll be able to repeat that road trip again sometime, but take some extra time to stop in these towns and maybe expand the trip to three or four days on the road. Now, this happened after some really nasty droughts, and it was really something driving over rivers that were mostly dry with the pebbly bottoms exposed. It was fascinating yet sad at the same time, and I was really worried about Northern California seeing all that. In 2018, Lisa and I spent a few days in San Diego, uh, Ocean Beach specifically, and then we took a road trip up the coast to San Francisco with a few stops on the way. First off, we wanted to check out Huntington Beach, also known as Surf City, USA. So we pulled over and struggled to find a parking space. Man, that was difficult, because, um, we didn't know it, but the day we picked to visit Surf City, USA was the day of the U.S. Open of surfing. So every surfer and hodad in the world was there. And after we eventually found a parking space, we came back to find that the mirror on the driver's side door was knocked off. And let me tell you, I'm still dealing with an inflated car insurance premium because of that two years later. <sighs> but anyway, we spent the night in San Pedro, which at the time I thought was its own town, but it turns out it's actually a neighborhood in the city of Los Angeles. The reason we stopped there is that the next day we were going to Catalina Island, and there's a ferry to the island in San Pedro. And uh, Catalina Island is about 27 miles off the coast. We went and we had an absolute blast. But uh, the weirdest thing ever, 
after we got off the ferry boat and we walked into the main business district of Avalon, the first shop window we saw had uh, nothing but Chicago Cubs paraphernalia. T-shirts, baseball caps, the usual sports stuff. But Chicago Cubs? We're all the way in the Pacific Ocean, but we still can't avoid Chicago. Well, it turns out that for about 30 years, the Cubs did their spring training on Catalina Island because William Wrigley owned a lot of property on the island. I ended up buying a baseball cap, partially because, well, my head is very sensitive to the sun and I didn't have a hat. We had a nice lunch with the best lobster roll I ever had. Uh, Just wish I could remember the name of the restaurant, though. And uh, we played some miniature golf. We love playing miniature golf. The next day, we left San Pedro and continued north on Pacific Coast Highway and pulled off in Malibu to have lunch at the Paradise Cove Beach Cafe. We love Paradise Cove. It was our second trip there. It's a nice little beach that has a lot of Hollywood history. If you see a beach scene in a movie or TV show from the 50s or 60s, chances are pretty good it was filmed at Paradise Cove. And I'm not even going to try to deny that the fact that at least three Beach Boys album covers had pictures taken at Paradise Cove contributed to our decision to visit. We had been there two years prior when we spent a few days in L.A. My meal both times, clam chowder and a bread bowl. And let me tell you, it was the best soup I ever had. And one thing I found neat about the Paradise Cove Beach Cafe You know how there's a big movement to get rid of plastic straws and replace them with something more environmentally friendly? Well, uh, the Paradise Cove Beach Cafe's solution, they use straws that are literally made out of pasta, which is really cool because they're sturdy, they actually stay good and sturdy in your drink for a surprisingly long time, and they're definitely biodegradable. Now, the thing about Paradise Cove is that it's very expensive to park there. I think it was over 30 bucks. And you're limited to just a few hours. But if you have food at the cafe, the parking fee is significantly reduced. It's so worth it, though, especially if you can eat outside and feel the cool sand between your toes. It's a long wait to eat outside, but it's worth it if you have the time. After we finished lunch, we continued up the coast and made our way to Interstate 5, or as they say in California, the 5. Our overnight stop this time was at the Rose Garden Inn on the outskirts of San Luis Obispo. We chose this place partly because there was a tacky diner across the parking lot, but uh, we found out that between the time we booked the hotel reservation and when we arrived, the restaurant actually closed down. The owner had to do a lot of uh, renovations, and apparently it was too expensive for the owner's liking, so he put it up for sale for $1.7 million. I think it's since been purchased. The Rose Garden Inn was very rustic, I gotta say. The carpet in our room had a big tear, and the Wi-Fi wasn't working. The place was obviously understaffed, too, because we saw just one guy working there, but he was definitely busting his butt. Now, when I stay at a hotel, there are three critical questions I have to ask myself. One, is there reliable hot water in the shower? Two, does the toilet work properly? And three... Is the bed clean? Thankfully, the answer to all three questions was yes. If you look at TripAdvisor, though, there are a lot of dismal reviews from the past couple of years, but our experience was fine, especially the hot tub. Oh my god, the hot tub. It is a huge hot tub, almost the size of a large swimming pool. There were waterfalls in the perimeter, the lights glowing at night. Oh my god, it was so cool. I want to go back there just for the hot tub, really. 
the next day was the last leg of the drive. I really don't remember a lot in particular, but what really sticks out to me is how the temperature changed once we reached San Francisco. While we were driving through Cupertino, it was in the high 80s, low 90s, but almost instantly as we crossed into San Francisco, we watched the thermometer on the dashboard drop 30 degrees. We haven't really done any big road trips since then, though, unless you count our extended 4th of July weekend last year. Uh, those of you listening in the future, that was 2019. We went to Door County, Wisconsin, specifically Sister Bay is where we stayed. It's about a four-hour drive, so I guess that counts as a road trip. And yes, we stopped at the Mars Cheese Castle on the way, and uh, I bought a tie-dye shirt advertising the Bong Recreation Area, a real place. We actually planned to repeat that trip this year, but when COVID-19 broke out, businesses in Door County were asking people who normally come to visit in the summer to try to, well, stay out of <laughs> Door County because in case people get sick, their hospitals can't handle much of a load, so they want to just focus on locals, really. There were times when we took a couple of overnight trips to St. Louis for a couple of concerts in the past, but man, about four and a half of those five hours on the road are just beyond boring when you go to St. Louis from Chicago. We did wise up the last time we went and we took Amtrak, which was a huge improvement. And in 2016 on Memorial Day weekend, we drove down to Louisville for Abbey Road on the River, which is a Beatles fan festival. And that was fun, except that we got a flat tire in Indianapolis. Uh, and I will always be grateful for a service place called Pomps, who fixed our tire. They were the only place still open at the time because they are open 24-7 and there are several locations in the Midwest. But whatever the case... I now get pretty excited about road trips. I love seeing what there is to see, even from the interstates. I love the local color. I love spending quality time alone with Lisa. And I even love going back home. And you can listen to chapter 22 if you need to be reminded why. Unpacking the car afterwards? Well, that's another story that, uh, honestly, I'm probably not gonna tell. I decided to look into some of the sites that I remember from past road trips, especially with my parents. That Whitehall Inn Hotel in Daytona Beach, well, that eventually became a Radisson Resort, and it's now the Ocean Breeze Club Hotel. I think the Beachcomber Inn is now condos. No idea whatever happened to that flea trap days in in Ormond Beach, though. My parents' old haunt in Clearwater Beach, the Dunes Motel, well, that was demolished, I think, 16 years ago, and I think that might have had something to do with uh, why they haven't really been back since. I think they still need to find a new place to go that they like just as much. But I also found out I got a lot of details wrong in my story here. Uh, it shows you what good doing research is after the fact instead of before the fact. Remember how I said that you're in Chattanooga almost immediately after you leave Mont Eagle? Well, that's... Not actually true. I don't remember why I thought that. It, I guess I just remember things differently, or maybe there was another mountain we went through or something, but Chattanooga is actually about 45 miles away from Mont Eagle. But I th I th it might have been just that Chattanooga just suddenly pops out of nowhere. One minute you're in the boonies, and then all of a sudden there's a city. And also, after uh, recording the previous segment, 
I somehow magically remembered that Roper and appliance wiring components were not in Cleveland, Georgia after all, but Lafayette, Georgia, which is about 115 miles northwest of Cleveland. And also, after I recorded, uh, going back to Mont Eagle, uh, Interstate 24, I learned, at some point had been reconfigured. Now, the last time that my parents took Interstate 24 and went through Mont Eagle, it was that both directions took the same path around the mountain, or great as it were. So you'd be going one way and you'd see the other lanes of traffic going the other way. Well, that's no longer the case. Sometime after my parents found that Alabama detour, 24 was reconfigured so that eastbound traffic, which I guess to us was southbound, and westbound traffic were on different parts of the mountain altogether, so you never saw the opposing traffic anymore. I don't know if it necessarily made the drive any less adventurous, but because of my mother's fear of heights, I will probably never know. Oh, and uh, dig this. There was something else during Florida trips that my mother refused to use, the Sunshine Skyway Bridge over Tampa Bay. I don't remember this, but apparently on the way to Sarasota back in the 70s, my mother was, well, not handling going over that bridge very well. And she would say, what if it collapses? Well, my dad said, oh, it's not going to collapse. Well, guess what happened a couple of years later? Yep, the damn thing collapsed. <laughs> After a boat lost control in a sudden gust of wind and slammed into one of the supports, part of the bridge actually fell into the bay, sending 35 people to their deaths. Oh, God. And uh, to make things even more exciting, when they built the new bridge, they actually left up part of the old collapsed bridge, and it's now used as a fishing pier. So when you're going across the bridge, you suddenly see what remains of a destroyed bridge, and uh, apparently it's very creepy when you're driving through. I haven't been on the Skyway Bridge since, so I really don't know. When uh, we went to see my dad's relatives, I think it was in the early 90s, because my mother wouldn't go over that bridge, we had to find a detour around it. Uh, and also, I realized I was incorrect about Tarpon Springs and Tio Pepe's. I thought for sure that that restaurant was in Tarpon Springs, but apparently it was actually Clearwater. Then I thought, oh, it must be the Kapok tree. We went there, too, with our neighbors. And uh, the Kapok tree no longer exists, but it was a massive restaurant. It had a small shopping mall attached to it. Usually it's the other way around. You have a mall with a restaurant attached to it. No, this was a restaurant with a mall attached to it. <laughs> but nope, that also was in Clearwater. Then it must have been Chief Charlie's, another place we went with the neighbors. But no, that also was, and I think still is in Clearwater Beach. But I know that we had dinner in Tarpon Springs with our neighbors. Might have been Olive Garden. I do remember having an Olive Garden meal with them in Florida. In fact, that was the first time I'd ever been to an Olive Garden. I don't know. I don't know. And when I think back to that 1985 Disney World visit, we did not set foot in Tomorrowland, which I, I was really looking forward to seeing Tomorrowland, but of course, I got sick and I just didn't want to hang around. To make up for that, when Lisa and I went to Disneyland in 2016 for a day, we did spend some time in Tomorrowland, uh, but uh, we did not ride Space Mountain, or as it was called then, probably still is actually Hyperspace Mountain, because uh, it has a Star Wars theme to it now. Uh, the wait was something like three hours, so we didn't feel it was worth the return of investment. Uh, I, By the way, that's supposed to be Tomorrowland, yet Star Wars is set in the past. So why is something that's set in the past 
given a place in somewhere that's supposed to represent the future. I don't know. I don't know. But while we were there, we did buy a couple of plastic souvenir plates at a gift shop, one with Frontierland on it and another with Tomorrowland. I use the Tomorrowland plate when I have a bagel for breakfast. Even though I'm not a fan of Disney at all, something about that Tomorrowland plate makes me happy. I, I think it's the tackiness of the artwork. I'll share a picture of it. Oh, speaking of tackiness, uh, that tacky diner I mentioned that used to be by the Rose Garden Inn in San Luis Obispo, it was indeed purchased, as I thought, and it is now a taco temple, which is a California fusion restaurant, whatever that means. But I think they have two locations. I forgot where the other one is. Oh, and another thing I misspoke about. I did actually have one road trip between the time I graduated college and the time I moved to New Jersey. I drove 10 hours to the town of Virginia, Minnesota for a friend's wedding. And uh, in the next segment, you'll hear me mention that uh, friend, by the way. I honestly don't remember much about the trip itself, except that there's a town in Minnesota called Twig. And it's almost literally a blink-and-you'll-miss-it kind of thing to drive through. I also remember driving over part of Lake Superior, which was really cool, and pulling over into downtown Duluth on the way home, and stopping at a record store called Electric Fetus, where I picked up a CD copy of The Twain Shall Meet by Eric Burden and the Animals. Speaking of shopping for music, remember how in the intro to this episode I said that, uh, yeah, I'm a schnook, but I've been called worse? Well, I'm going to talk about uh, one of those worst things I've been called and uh, how it came to be. Friends, I don't believe I ever told you this about myself. Without a doubt, many who know me will be happy to tell you this, though. But I'll just tell you right now. I am an asshole. And I have no trouble admitting I'm an asshole. And you know who else is an asshole? My former co-worker Jason, with whom I worked in Princeton, New Jersey, back when we both worked for one of the world's largest test prep companies, just a couple of blocks down Nassau Street from the university. It was our apparent assholery at work that made people call us assholes. Well, I should be more specific. Jason and I were, and I quote, the perfect pitch assholes. I met Jason in 2002 when I was working part-time for that company as an instructor, and I worked full-time with him two years later. But over that time, we found that we had a lot in common. Our birthdays were only a day apart, still are. We both honeymooned in Bermuda, that is, separately with our respective wives, uh, not as in we went on a honeymoon together, indeed, uh, no. We were both married to teachers... We both do some things left-handed, uh, the same things, that is, and some things right-handed. Jason and I had similar musical tastes, and what musical tastes we did not share, we easily could appreciate. We're also both grammar snobs. Well, then again, pretty much everybody who worked there was a stickler for grammar. You kind of had to be in our line of work. At times, we seemingly shared the same mind, which... Really makes me worry about poor Jason. Man, anybody sharing my mind? Wow. Case in point, I don't remember the context, but somebody in the office said something, uh, and one of our coworkers commented about what was said, and that person said, I don't know exactly what to say about that. It sounds like... Um... And both Jason and I, at the exact same moment, said, Trochaic tetrameter! 
Our co-worker Shannon said, Are you two going to hold hands now? But one thing that Jason and I had in common that definitely drove our co-workers up the wall, we both have perfect pitch. I think we discovered that about each other when we were listening to the Beatles' Revolver album at work. You see, in our department, we were always playing CDs throughout the day, so someone had Revolver playing. I don't remember what prompted it, but I said something about how Tomorrow Never Knows literally has only one chord in it, and indeed, the entire song stays on a C major chord. Jason said the argument could be made that there are some C7 chords as well, but I guess I should be specific and say that the basic track of Tomorrow Never Knows has nothing but C in it. One of the tape loops has kind of a drony sound that plays a B-flat, which would in turn make that C chord into a C7 chord. If you don't know music theory, trust me, if you play a C chord but add a B-flat to it, it becomes a C7 chord. Anyway, um, I, I guess you could argue that the B-flat sound from that tape loop happens in the same place in the verse every time, and ergo a C7 makes a regular and predictable appearance in every verse. But whatever the case, eh, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about perfect pitch. For those of you who don't know what perfect pitch is, I assure you it has nothing to do with baseball. Perfect pitch, sometimes called absolute pitch, means that you can recognize a note or a chord just by listening to it. Someone tells you a note by name, like say someone comes up to you and says, F sharp, you can probably sing that note without listening to a reference tone. If you're a musician and you hear a new song, you'll likely be able to play that song after hearing it without even having to look at any chord patterns or sheet music. You do it from memory, which is why perfect pitch is also called pitch memory. And really, that's just what it is. It's memory. You remember the note that you heard. I recall when I got a Casio keyboard for Christmas in the 80s. It was a pretty cheap basic one, a Casio Tone MT35. You know, one of those keyboards that has an auto accompaniment feature, usually in a bossa nova tempo, and you use the first few notes on the keyboard to control the key that the auto accompaniment plays, whether it be a D major or F sharp minor seventh. Those first few keys were labeled, and ergo, that's how I learned what piano keys corresponded to what notes. I distinctly remember hitting the E key, hearing that note, and immediately thinking, oh, that's the first note in the bass line of Beat Street Strut. I was obsessed with the movie Beat Street. It was the mid-80s, after all. It didn't occur to me then, but that was obviously the moment in which my tollery was born. But really, though, it wasn't just that moment. I'd always been aware of notes, keys, and chords. If I heard someone singing a popular song, but it wasn't in the same key as the recording, I would tell right away that it was different. It's just that the Casio Beat Street strut moment is when it was ingrained in my mind that E is the first note of the bass line of Beat Street strut. Those of you who don't have perfect pitch, um, including those of you who do have perfect pitch but just don't know it, let me tell you what it's like to hear a piece of music in a different key from what you're used to. It's weird. Cecil Adams put it nicely in a column he wrote on Perfect Pitch in his column, The Straight Dope. I think that issue of his column is available online, and if it is, I'll be putting it in the online bibliography at schnookpodcast.com. But anyway, Cecil wrote that when someone with Perfect Pitch hears music in a different key, it's like seeing purple grass. It just 
sounds weird. Interestingly, if I hear a song that's in a different key from what I'm used to, but it's a fifth away, for example, a song I'm used to hearing in C, but I hear it performed in G, it's actually not a big deal for me. I guess my mind is in tune with a circle of fifths, I don't know. Uh, again, another music theory term. If you don't know what that is, don't worry. But otherwise, though, depending on the specific key change, a song played in a different key could affect me in different ways, ranging from not liking the sound at best to literally not recognizing the song at all at worst. Case in point, the Beach Boys song The Warmth of the Sun from 1964. It is a very popular song, especially among Beach Boys fans. The Beach Boys version of the song is in the key of C. In 1995, Brian Wilson released a remake in the key of G. Remember, G is a fifth away from C. Uh, how do you know it's a fifth? Well, start with C and count. C1, D2, E3, F4, G5. So there's a fifth. Somehow it didn't phase me. I did notice right away when I heard it that it was in a lower key, which is understandable because after all the crap Brian Wilson did to himself, especially cigarettes and cocaine, between roughly 1968 and 1982, he can't reach those high notes anymore. But it didn't bother me at all. It sounded right and it made sense. However, when I saw Brian in concert in 2001, and he and the band did the warmth of the sun in the key of A, apparently in the seven years since the previous version of that song, his voice improved enough to raise the key a bit, I don't know. But the thing is, I literally had no idea what in the hell he was performing. There was something familiar about it, but I could not make it out. It literally took until the words, the warmth of the sun, came out of his mouth, and then it hit me. But my perfect pitch brain just could not process it as a song that I recognized. And that's why having perfect pitch can be a curse. Hearing something not in the correct key can be very grating. If someone's playing an out-of-tune guitar, the perfect pitch asshole will visibly cringe at the sound. I remember in 2001, I was playing bass in the folk group at the church that Lisa and I attended. After mass one day, somebody approached me and offered me money to overdub bass lines onto his demos. So I met with him at his house, and we had some interesting conversations. Not really interesting enough for me to remember them 19 years later, though, except for when he asked me, So if a Beatles song comes on the radio, do you sing along with John or Paul? Well, uh, John, obviously. Paul has too high a voice for me. But he picked up his guitar and he played me one of his songs. After he finished, I picked up his guitar and tuned one of the strings. I noticed something was a bit off. He said, oh, I'm sorry I insulted you. If only everybody who played an out-of-tune guitar would apologize to me. Hmm. The perfect pitch hole is impatient. Back when I was in seventh grade in music class, we were playing recorders. Uh, that is the flute-like musical instrument, uh, not a tape deck, uh, just to be clear. I have a clear memory of the recorder books we all had. They were orange, and they carried the title, It's Recorder Time. <laughs> My copy, however, had been vandalized by whoever had it previously. Uh, said vandal took a felt-tip marker, put a carrot between its and recorder, and wrote the word not above the carrot. Scandalous. Mrs. Martis, our teacher, uh, she would call on people to play a designated piece from It's Recorder Time, uh, or in my case, It's Not Recorder Time. It's the usual stuff you'd expect. Hot crust buns, shortening bread, too fat polka. 
But I remember sitting there listening to one of my classmates play Mary Had a Little Lamb. She struggled to find the last note, just staring at the sheet music in the book, counting the lines and spaces on the staff, trying to figure out where the fingers were supposed to go. It was all I could do to stop myself from yelling, Come on! You know Mary had a little lamb. Just play the damn note. You don't need to look at the music. That, however, was before I knew that there was this thing called perfect pitch. I didn't know that not everybody has that ability. Depending on whom you ask, either you have to be born with it or you can learn it. Personally, I don't know. I don't know. I have my theories. I'd like to think that it's something that can be learned. It might just be the way that my brain is wired, but it seems to me that perfect pitch should be learnable. It's just a matter of being very observant and having a somewhat good memory. Quite often, my wife will hear a chord and ask me, is that the same chord that starts off and then she'll name a song? I'd say at least nine times out of ten, it is indeed the correct chord. Then there's my friend Bridget, whom I've mentioned on this podcast before. We were both on the Scholastic Bowl team in high school, and for those of you who don't know, the short explanation is that two teams of five compete against each other. The moderator asks a question, and you buzz in and try to answer it. Basically, it's like Jeopardy and Family Feud had a love child. One time during a match, when someone buzzed in, I said F-sharp. Of course, Bridget wanted to call me out on that. She said, I'm going to see right now if you're right. Bridget was in the spring musical and happened to have her sheet music from the musical with her, and she knew exactly where in one song that particular note that the buzzer made was. So she looked it up in the sheet music, and I swear her jaw dropped. So I smirked and said, told you. The thing is, though, that she could match that note to a song she was familiar with tells me that Bridget also has perfect pitch. Which wouldn't surprise me. She's very musical, and she's an active singer to this day. I told her one day, I have news for you. You probably have perfect pitch, too. However, she said no, because I can't name the note by hearing it. But here's the thing, friends, though. You don't need to be able to name the actual note. Another name for perfect pitch is pitch memory, so-called because you remember the pitch itself. It doesn't matter whether or not you know the name of the note. If you hear any note and can match it to, say, a song accurately, then you probably have perfect pitch. Another memory I have in high school is my music appreciation class when I was a sophomore. There was an upright piano in the front of the classroom. Well, one of my classmates on his way to his seat just hit a couple of notes on the piano at random, and they happened to be the low E and the low F. And upon hearing those two notes that he just randomly plucked on the piano, he said, Whoa, that's the perfect Jaws theme intro. Well, it was. It was. Those were the correct notes. This guy, who as far as I know to this day has zero interest in music other than listening to 80s hard rock, he was absolutely right. And little does he know it, but he likely has perfect pitch. And by the way, a piano is a perfect instrument to test someone's perfect pitch. A lot of people, even non-musicians, know the layout of the keys. If you don't, well, you will in a few seconds. You probably notice that on a standard piano keyboard, the black keys are grouped in twos and threes. You'll see two black keys with white keys around them, and then three black keys with white keys around them. Well, going from the white key to the immediate left of the first black key in one of those two black key groups 
all the way to the white key to the immediate right of the last black key in a set of three is C to B. That is, you have two black keys, the first white key before that first black key is a C, and when you have three black keys, the first white key immediately after the last black key is a B. And that pattern starts over again with C as you go up and down the keyboard. So in the groups with two black keys, the white keys are C, D, and E. In groups where there are three black keys, the white keys are F, G, A, and B. The black keys are the sharps and flats in between. For example, the black key to the immediate right of the F key is F sharp. But because it's also to the immediate left of the G key, that black key is also called G flat. So yeah, F sharp and G flat are the exact same note. And there you are. If you ever want to test someone for perfect pitch with a piano keyboard, now you know how you can. Personally, I've found that when people like to test me on perfect pitch with a piano, they invariably start with middle C. Uh, that is the C key nearest to the middle of the keyboard. Every single time. Not sure why they always start with middle C. I don't know, maybe it's a calibration thing? I don't know. Some time ago, one of my coworkers was brushing his teeth with an electric toothbrush in the men's room. And because I'm a perfect pitch hole, I had to mention that the toothbrush vibrated in the key of B. Peter, however, he disagreed. He said, I thought for sure it was C sharp. So I pulled out my cell phone and played a B on a tuner app that I used. Later on, Peter told me why he thought it was C sharp. He said it was a brand new electric toothbrush and the previous one that he had vibrated in C-sharp, so he just assumed the new one was also C-sharp, but no. Nah. I believe it was June of 2006 when I first went to Midwest Gaming Classic outside of Milwaukee. My friend and Pie Factory podcast co-host Jim and his wife joined me for the occasion. And there it is, the requisite cross-podcast promotion. Haha. <laughs> in one of the hotel's hallways, there was a piano, and just as my classmate in Music Apriche class did, Jim just hit a random key as he walked past the piano and identified the note as a C-sharp, I think. And Jim said, you don't impress me, for all I know, you're lying. But a passerby saw that and said, do you have perfect pitch? And I said, want to find out? So the guy went over to the piano and hit middle C, of course. And I said, of course you're going to play a middle C. Why does everybody start with middle C? So he played a few more notes that I correctly identified, and then he said, can you do chords too? I said, try me. So he played a couple of chords that uh, <laughs> I correctly identified, and then he just got up and said, this is crazy, and he walked away. Now, that's the thing, though. You'd need some kind of musical instrument nearby if you want real cred as a perfect pitch asshole. I mean, one day I was visiting a friend in Minnesota. He was about to get married and uh, hung out with him for a few days. But uh, one day when we were hanging out, he blew his nose and identified the note as an A flat. And he cracked up and said, now, how am I supposed to know if you're right? I mean, sometimes at work, Jason and I, upon hearing a tone from somewhere, be it a car horn outside or maybe somebody's cell phone, uh, this was back before smartphones and you had fancy ringtones and stuff. So what we would do, we wouldn't announce the key but we would write down the note on a piece of paper and hold it up for all to see so that people knew we were thinking independently. And one day our boss said, oh, just stop it. You guys are so full of it. For all we know, you're making it up. 
I mean, for God's sakes, last time you two didn't even agree on the note. One of you put down F sharp, and one of you wrote G flat. Uh, yeah, I know, folks. <laughs> but I think it was at that point that the term perfect pitch hole was coined. So, in our department in the office, it was not an uncommon thing to hear somebody say, oh, the perfect pitch holes are at it again. So, what's my point of talking about this? Honestly, I don't know. Maybe I don't have a point. Is it to brag? Well, not really. I mean, yeah, perfect pitch might seem impressive to some people, but like I said before, it could be a curse. You hear a song performed in a different key from what you're used to? It's annoying. You hear an out-of-tune guitar string? It's painful. And let me tell you, those situations are far more common than, say, the need for a human pitch pipe. Does perfect pitch mean that you're a good singer or musician? Well, by all means, no. It just means you can recognize a pitch. I mean, I play various instruments, and at best I'm mediocre. And my singing leaves much to be desired, let's just face it. Now, then again, Jason is an excellent musician himself. He's a keyboard player and lead singer of a prog rock band called Orpheus 9. He's really, really good. But do I wish that I did not have perfect pitch? Actually, no, no. I'm glad I have it, and I will forever argue that there are a lot of people out there who don't know they have it, but they do. And, of course, there are some who do have it, but just refuse to admit it. They make excuses as to why they can't have perfect pitch. As for me, hey, I can identify notes by listening, and I can do the same with most chords. Majors, minors, sevenths, minor sevenths, major sevenths. Well, diminished and augmented chords, eh, I'd have to at least stop and think for a moment, but I could probably get them. I'll tell you what, though. Being able to do this stuff makes it easy to learn how to play a song, say, on a guitar. Or if I'm writing music, it's very easy to take what I hear in my head and play it on an instrument, or at least write it down. And if I hear a car alarm go off, I can tell my wife that it's not our car because I know what notes our car horn blows. So, I didn't talk about this to brag. Remember, this podcast is an autobiography. This is about myself, my life. Perfect Pitch is a part of my life. I'm not bragging. I'm just being an asshole, Or at the very least, a schnook. Oh, there's one more uh, perfect pitch hole anecdote that I forgot to mention, and uh, now's as good a time as any to uh, talk about it. But I've I'm pretty sure I've mentioned it before that uh, Lisa and I used to go to Beatle Fest all the time. It's uh, an annual Beatles fan convention, duh. But uh, they're not having it this year. I wonder why. It's something about a virus going around or something. But I think it was. 2004? No, 2000. It was 2004 or 2005. I don't remember for sure. Or maybe even 2003. Screw it. Sometime in the 2000s when uh, some friends of ours were performing. Uh, they What they usually have is uh, on Saturdays at Beetlefest, they have what they call the uh, sound alike contest, which isn't really a sound alike contest. It used to be way back when the fest first started in the 70s. It was a real sound alike contest, but now it's just basically two people or fewer, that is two or one, I guess, get up and perform something. 
And then on Sunday, they had the Battle of the Bands, which was basically a band would consist of three or more people. Well, we had uh, some friends of ours who were performing, I believe, in the Battle of the Bands. There were three or four of them doing an acapella arrangement of In My Life. And our friend Winona blew a pitch pipe. And, well, Lisa was recording the performance at their request. Uh, we had a ca- either a camcorder or her digital camera, I don't remember. But Winona blew the pitch pipe. And, of course, because I am a perfect pitch hole. I had to say E-flat. Well, after Lisa sent them the video and they watched it back, Winona said, he's right, that was an (laughs) E-flat. And Lisa said, I know. Because she knows. She knows. (laughs) Anyway, um, that was chapter 23. And everybody, as usual, I thank you for listening. And as usual, I also thank my lovely wife, Lisa, for her undying support and enthusiasm and encouragement. And, um, God, now that I'm doing this, I don't remember for sure if I used any uh, copyrighted music in this particular chapter. But if I did, it was meant for demonstration, for critique, and not for infringement. The copyright belongs to the respective copyright holders, of course. I cannot afford publishing rights, so there. Uh, Maybe I could if uh, some people use the donate option on the Autobiography of a Schnook website, which is schnookpodcast.com, which is where the online bibliography is kept, also known as show notes. And yeah, truth be told, no, I'm not going to use anything coming in from the donate button for anything other than operation costs for this podcast and maybe equipment upgrades and things. I'm not going to use it to line my pockets. But you can also keep in touch with me over the social media. I'm on Facebook. Look for Autobiography of a Schnook in the Facebook search engine, or just go to facebook.com slash schnookpodcast. And schnookpodcast is also my handle on both Twitter and, uh, oh, what's that other one? Instagram. Instagram, yeah. You can also send me an email at autobio at schnookpodcast.com. And until we get things right, I'm going to implore you folks, please, if you can't keep a six feet or two meter distance from someone you don't live with, please put on a face mask. It's not to protect you. It's to protect everybody else from anything you might be having. Be smart. Keep yourself safe. Please keep yourself safe. You don't want to go through the misery that a lot of people have been going through with this stupid COVID-19 thing. Just keep yourself safe. Wash your hands for 20 seconds. Don't touch your face. Talk to your doctor. And if you're just going to poo-poo my advice because I'm just a schnook, then at least talk to your doctor for advice. Okay? I just want you to be safe. Because the good goes around and I want you to be able to enjoy it whether it be as a road trip or whether it be punching the face of an asshole showing off his perfect pitch. All the best, my friends. And in fact, Portland, Oregon is named after Portland, Maine. Oh, my notes say we spent a few years there. No, we did not. We only spent a few days there. So, but anyway, the trooper just cut to the chase. Or as it says here in my notes, cut to the trace. Hmm.